Well, it is that time of year where maybe some of us are excited, maybe some of us are mourning, but the, another NFL season is upon us. And sports writers in every venue are asking the question, is it possible this year for someone to derail Tom Brady and the New England Patriots? Uh, some of you are like, no, it's impossible. Um, Brady, some of you may know, and the Patriots, just in the last several years, their record is absolutely astonishing. Uh, it, is, it is unheard of, un- unprecedented. They have played together in some nine Super Bowls and won six of them. Again, that's just absolutely unheard of, and, and many are asking, of course, every time they win, or even every time they get to the big game, how is it that they've done it again? And again, and again, and again. What, what, how do you explain this? Well, I came across a headline in an article just this past week, and this headline alone, and I'm going to read you a quote after that, I think explains it pretty well. The headline is this, football is Tom Brady's religion. And that's not a joke. The writer's being dead serious. Football is Tom Brady's religion. And this quote I'm going to read to you comes from a film producer who worked on a a documentary on Brady's life and his career. And this is a quote uh, from that documentary and an interview with this gentleman. What's really at the epicenter of it is this devotional love for the game. It is his vocation. It's what gives his life meaning and purpose. This drives his focus, determination, and priorities. We're going to talk about priorities a bit here together this morning. Uh, what are ours? What really are, are ours? Um, what drives us? What fills us with meaning and focus and determination? Our priorities, what, they, what are they? And I should also add before we get going that this is intended to be the first of four messages in a series this month on the spiritual gifts, as we find uh, put forward to us by the biblical writers in the New Testament. This is a a heavy emphasis, something we're pushing into really hard here in the month of September, and uh, that'll become increasingly clear as we move through uh, the passage. But let's look at the passage first. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Now, if you're trying to find 1 Peter, I don't mean to sound snarky, but that does come before 2 Peter. It comes after, immediately after, though, the book of James, which comes after the book of Hebrews. And that's a big book. takes up a lot of real estate in the New Testament. Uh, before that, you've got several of Paul's letters that begin with the letter T, uh, the Thessalonian letters, the letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, Hebrews, James, and now 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Hear now the word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. Can we pray for just a moment? Lord, thank you for Peter's life, Peter's life and ministry, for your work in and through him as one of the apostles um, of whom we read so much there in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and we thank you for these two letters that you have uh, inspired and preserved all these years such that we could now have a few moments here at the beginning of the week on this Labor Day weekend to read a portion, to think and ponder a portion of one of Peter, the Apostle Peter's letters to that group of churches there in the first century in Asia Minor. We ask that you'd give us ears with which to hear. Uh, Perhaps even if maybe some of us here have never heard this text before. And this is falling quite literally very fresh upon us. Uh, For others of us, maybe we have heard this before, read it, studied it, pondered it. Um, But may you still yet give us also fresh ears with which to hear. We are every one of us, not, not, not a one of us, not a one of us has arrived. What a prideful thing to think. Not a one of us here has arrived. We all have immense, immense room for growth, and we ask that you would grow us much, even in this time we pray. Amen. Before we get going in looking at the passage, there are a few obstacles that we need to deal with. Uh, You may want to think in terms of like a garden and pulling some stones up out of the garden so that we can begin to sow some seed. Or if you want to think in just terms of pulling up some weeds, there are at least a couple obstacles here that we need to deal with. And the first has to do with the struggle that many of us have with just believing in the concept, hearing of the idea of this is the end, or the end isn't near, or these are the last days. There's just an instinctive pushback that that many of us feel uh, immediately when that sort of language is is used. Um, You need to understand, though, that the biblical writers from the very beginning did not mean that it was surely coming tomorrow, like literally tomorrow. So sell all you have, live on a hill, wait for him to come down. That's ne- that was never the intended meaning that it is Jesus is surely coming, like I know, today, or really, really, even really, really soon. That was never the, the intended meaning of the biblical writers, but rather that all of the great events in God's plan of salvation have already occurred, especially everything that led to Jesus' life and ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. All of the great events in God's plan of salvation have occurred so that that then sets the stage. It, sets, it clears everything away for the last act, and that last act can come any moment. That can come tomorrow. It can come in, in five minutes. That's the sense in which the biblical writers said that these are the last days and the end is at hand. So we don't need to be concerned about a misunderstanding and, and that obstacle. There's another obstacle, though, and it's more of a philosophical one or a theological one, just, just a stance, a worldview, co- complaint or issue or constraint, and that is just a struggle with the idea of saying that the world's going to end. Just a struggle with the idea, the very concept of saying that God can act in any sort of cosmic, causal way. Now, there's 
one word that's worth pointing out here in terms of its, its definition. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he actually, that word end is telos, and it does not mean necessarily cessation like, you know, bridge out, it's all over, game over, but rather fulfillment. That the, the, all of God's plans and purposes are coming to a culmination and fulfillment, the plans and purposes. In that sense, the end, the fulfillment uh, of all things is at hand. But let, we just need to push a little further in terms of the, the struggle with saying that could God work in any sort of cosmo, cosmic way? Well, we just need to step back and ask this question. Where did the cosmos come from in the first place? And is it not possible that the one who created it all could recreate it all? Is that not possible? And is it not possible that the Christ who came once can come again? Absolutely. It is not just possible, it is certain. It's not just possible, it is, it is certain. So all that said, as Peter says here, the end is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And what Peter wants his readers to do is to reckon with that reality and to wrestle with its implications. To reckon with that reality and to wrestle with its implications, the ramifications. Or put it this way, with the end of all things at hand, we need to focus on the essentials of life and ministry. That would be the ramifications of it. That would be the implications of if, in fact, the end is at hand, we need to be focusing on the essentials of life and ministry all the time, every day, for as long as we are here. Now, what would those essentials be? What, would, what are the ramifications of the fact that the end of all things is at hand? Well, Peter tells us here in this passage. He makes it very, very clear. There are at least three that we can pull out from this, and the first being the absolute vital priority of prayer. The second one is the need for sacrificial love. And the third one is the stewarding of gifts. Those three things, Peter says, those are the ramifications of the fact that the end is near that Jesus' return is at hand, those three things. Let's look at these uh, in turn. The first one, as Peter says, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter is clearly speaking here to the absolute vital priority of prayer, and he begins with that with a call to a disciplined life. Now, that may seem like an odd connection between those two, but it's going to become very clear, I think, here in, in, in just a moment. So there are these two commands that he gives, to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded, that is, to be, to be sensible and reasonable, to be sober and restrained. The rationale being, we have to take a step back and have a, this in mind, who is Peter writing to? These are recent converts to the faith. Their loyalties have gone through a complete paradigm shift, and they're in their lifestyles are completely different than they were before. And because of that, they are now bearing immense social cost. Abuse, insults, rejection, low grade. It's not yet. This is not Nero yet. This is not burning the Christians in the arena and putting them in the gladiatorial games. We're not there yet in terms of history. It's too early in the first century. But loss of property and being ostracized in society, that is beginning. That is certainly beginning. 
And so there's certainly with that a temptation towards discouragement and a pull towards dulling one's mind and numbing one's heart. I don't want to deal with it. I need to be distracted. It's too painful. It's too hard. And so therein, Peter calls on them to this disciplined life, uh, this call to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Well, again, you might say, well, what does that have to do with prayer? It has everything to do with prayer because now the call to a disciplined life is given because intimacy with God is at risk. That's what Peter has in mind here. The call to a disciplined life is there because of a, the intimacy with God was at risk. What is prayer? What is prayer? Prayer, a simple definition is this. A believer's communication with God. Three parts. Very simple definition. A believer's communication with God. God does not change. We, however, do And to the degree that we turn our back away from him in this undisciplined life, as Peter is speaking to here, it gums up and jams up that communication. It creates a sense of of absence, his absence, of estrangement between the believer and God. Sin does that. Sin does that. We've done that. Peter speaks to that actually uh, earlier in this letter, and husbands, hang on, because this puts us all on the hook. Chapter 3, verse 7, where he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's significant. That's significant. And it speaks to the very thing that Peter's speaking of here in chapter 4, believers' communication with God. That call to the disciplined life. That call to the disciplined life is there and is significant, but it is there pointing to the vital priority of prayer in the life of the believer. Well, the application at this point is obvious, isn't it? We're called to be a people of prayer. We're called to be a people of prayer. We're called to be a people who are growing in an experience of intimacy and dependency upon the living Jesus. That's what our calling is, called to be a people of prayer, which then begs a question when you connect that with the call to the disciplined life, what in my life, what in your life, what in our lives is disrupting that? What is pulling me, tempting me towards distraction and dumbing down and dulling my heart? instead of pulling me, pressing me towards Jesus in prayer? That kind of question is worth asking, painful as it may be, and struggling with. Because again, as Peter says, the end is at hand. The end is at hand. We need to be uh, focusing on the essentials of life and ministry. Well, that then takes us to the second point, and that is sacrificial love, which is an abiding priority just all the more so ramped up when times are hard, when times are tense. Abiding priority, something we are not to back off from. Again, verse 7, we're going to read on into verse 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That is to say, love 
without ceasing. Do not back off, but rather press in. Press in. Relationships, and Peter knows this abundantly well, relationships are a mess worth making, and they are messy. And if they're going to be real, and if there's going to be any growth in that relationship, it's going to come to a point where forgiveness and confession and repentance is going to be needed. If it's, if it's anything real, beyond just, oh, hey, how you doing? Fine, oh, I'm good. You know, back, you know, Facebook friends. If it's going to go past that point, you can guarantee there's going to be sin and hurt and forgiveness absolutely positively needed. So therein, relationships are costly. Forgiveness is costly. Relationships are costly. It means willing to absorb the debt of another person, just as Jesus has done for us. Willing to write it off, just as Jesus has done for us. Now, Peter, not just wanting to just let that lie, gives us a very practical example of such, of such a love, of such, this abiding priority of sacrificial love. So you read just a little further, and we have this very practical example. So I'm going to read verse 8 again, but now push into verse 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, historical context, need to keep in mind, this is before you had the Hampton Inn and the Holiday Inn Express and the Marriott and, and Airbnbs and all the... You don't have any of that kind of thing. When Peter is speaking to his readers here of the need to be hospitable, he is not speaking of the need to entertain. Martha Stewart is not on the radar yet. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with opening up your home to people who are traveling and need food and a place to stay. That's what hospitality meant in the first century. Because ends of the day, while they were present, were very few and far between, dangerous, and of dubious reputations. So especially for fellow Christians, it was actually a mark of spiritual maturity to be hospitable, to open up your life to another person in need. This is an embodiment of mercy. And like forgiveness, it is costly. Hospitality, opening up your life, whether literally your home or just the whole of yourself, is never convenient. It never, the need for it never comes about at an opportune time. All right, well, it's costly. And just as, with, just as is the case with forgiveness, we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are to be, in a sense, hospitable in the way Jesus has been hospitable to us, to open up our lives to one another the way he has laid down his life for us. With all the cost and all the inconvenience that that may bring. And again, this is something that at all times, at all times is vile, but most especially when times are hard, when things are, are tense. Embodied love is always inconvenient. It is always costly, whether you're talking about forgiveness in interpersonal relationships or some sort of 21st century version of first century hospitality of opening up one's, maybe literally one's home, but certainly one's life. It is always costly. It is always inconvenient. It, what does it assume? 
it assumes a context of community. It assumes a context of relationship, of willing to do relationship with one another. Not just treating Sunday morning as something. We come in at, you know, just in time for Sunday school or worship, and we're done, and that's church. That's not church. That's an event. This assumes community and relationship. I cannot urge you enough. I'm not just plugging something here. I'm being very practical and very serious. When I say sign up for those community groups, that's living this out. Fill out one of those resource bank surveys. That's living this out. Being willing to mix it up and get messy in relationship with other fellow believers and bear the cost and deal with the inconvenience and be a body. I'm not saying those are the only applications, but we have to reckon with the fact that we've got to get practical, and those are certainly some very good practical applications of this. Again, the end is at hand. is what Peter tells us. We've got to be focused on the essentials of life and ministry, which takes us to the third point, the stewarding of, of gifts. Spend a little bit more time on, on this one. Verses 10 and 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, a definition might be helpful. What do we mean when we speak of spiritual gifts? We're not speaking here of the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of salvation that is true and equally so with no variation for every believer in Jesus. Nor are we speaking here of the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, and is an increasing manifestation as we grow in Christ's likeness. But that's not what we're talking about either. Nor are we talking about our natural gifts and abilities that every one of us is born with and, and, and all of that. Those are all fine and those are all good, but those are not spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, here's a definition. Special abilities given by the Holy Spirit to every believer according to God's grace to serve the body of Christ. Some of you are trying to write that down. I'll say it again. Special abilities given by the Holy Spirit to every believer according to God's grace to serve the body of Christ. Now, that's a lot, a lot of clauses there, and it's all right here in, in this text. Okay, seek and find. Let's go. Uh, some observations. First, the inclusiveness. You can see it here in this passage. No one is excluded. Every single Christian has been gifted in some way with a spiritual gift, some with maybe more than one. Some, it's simply you haven't discovered it yet, but Peter is very clear. Every one of us has been equipped and gifted with a spiritual gift. There's none. There's an inclusiveness here. The purpose. They are not to lie dormant. They are to be used. They are to be worked. They are to be put into practice. They are to be put into service. 
not for ourselves. This is not about how can I be fulfilled. That's not what this is. That is putting the proverbial cart before the horse. Perhaps in God's grace, you might be fulfilled in the exercise of your gift, but that's not the reason you exercise it. You exercise it for the sake of the people around you. Why has God gifted you in the way that he has? It's not your gift. It's his gift that you are to steward for the sake of the people around you. You get that? That's why we've been gifted in the ways that we have. It's not for my sake. It's not for your sake. It's for the sake of the people around us that we've been gifted in the ways that we have. Just as surely that it was our, why I read that quote earlier from that monk in the seventh century, it's the very point he was trying to make. There's a great tie-in there to why have we been given the, the material possessions that we have. Is that just for us? No, we are not owners of anything. We are stewards of everything for God's glory, for his kingdom purposes. So strictly speaking, none of, nothing's mine. Nothing's mine to do with as I please. What are the types of the gifts? That's the inclusiveness of the gifts, the purpose of the gifts, the types of the gifts, two broad categories that Peter puts here, speaking and serving. How are the such gifts to be uh, exercised? He makes that clear here as well. If it's a speaking gift, we are not to speak according to our grand ideas, but only his word. If we're talking about serving gifts, it is not to be done in our strength, but in his. And why? Because this is not about my name, your name, our name, but his name. And his glory through Jesus. So that's how those gifts must be exercised. As I said earlier, this is intended to be the first in a series of four messages on this topic, on the spiritual gifts plan is to push into that again just next week. Uh, this is a new emphasis here at CPC. This is not just a flash in the pan, Richard's looking for something to do in the month of September. This is an emphasis here at CPC. So if you've been a member of this church for years, we all have some adjustments to make. And if you're just coming into this body, you've come at a great time. This is a new emphasis in this body with a heightened awareness of how has God gifted us and what are the ramifications of that in this body and how we labor and serve beside one another. As a practical outworking of that, we have a gift assessment inventory that we are making available to everyone in this congregation, and I cannot urge you strongly enough to take the time to go through it. It's going to be on our website. It's going to be on the Facebook page. It will take you time to go through it. As anything worth doing, it is not going to take you 10 minutes in one, you know, afternoon while you're watching TV. It's going to take time. It may take several series of times, but as in anything worth doing, it's worth doing and worth putting the time into it. You may be thinking, but I already know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you think you do. Even if you do, or, even, or perhaps you don't, I promise you, I promise you, going through that, that, abor, that, that labor, that exercise, will help you to grow in greater insight into how God has wired you, which ought to be cause for praise, and it will help us as a body to know how to plug people in so we can really serve in the kingdom with greater effectiveness. 
Peter says the end is near. The end is at hand. We need to be focusing on essentials of life and ministry. Oliver Wendell Holmes, some of you may know, served on the Supreme Court, one of the justices of the Supreme Court from 1902 to 1932. He's quoted as saying, I don't know for sure if he's the first to have said this, but according to the Oracle, Wikipedia, he is the one who said this. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. Now, that can be true in some unfortunate cases, but clarifying one's definitions are important. And just a few years after, assuming Oliver Wendell Holmes was the one to have said this, just a few years after he, I guess, said this, a much wiser man by the name of C.S. Lewis said in a series of talks that later became a book we know today as Mere Christianity, these words. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. The Apostle Peter would have said yea and amen to what Lewis is saying there. The end of all things is at hand. We must pour ourselves, focus ourselves upon these essentials Priority of prayer, sacrificial love, and the stewarding of gifts. These are the words of Jesus himself through the apostle. Let's pray. Lord, it is encouraging, sobering, mystifying, exciting so many things to know that the telos is at hand. Your plans and purposes un un unfolding the fulfillment of the ages at any moment. That could be another thousand years or a thousand seconds. We ask that you would make us into a people who are living and laboring in your name, in your strength, with the hope and the assurance that one day, whenever that day is, all things are going to be made new, that that would be our focus, that that would be what drives us, that you would make us into a people of prayer, sacrificially loving one another, and stewarding our gifts to your, your, your glory of your name. We pray in your name. Amen.